Hello, everyone. This is Jim Blackburn, and this is another program on grit, stories of resilience. I'm going to talk today on a subject that I have rarely talked about in the past. Not so much because it was an awful time in my life, though it wasn't particularly pleasant, but it was not awful, but because I hadn't quite figured out how to tell the story from a purposeful point of view. It was three months in my life, almost 30 years ago, from the first Monday in January of 1994 until the springtime, perhaps in late April of that year, when I was away from home and in state prison, minimum security in Raleigh, in the Wake Correctional Facility on Rock Quarry Road. This is the story of that time, not told by me so much to be a drab, depressing story, and I hope it won't be that for you, but, but rather a story of finding some purpose during those months in my life. I remember thinking I was determined, absolutely determined, that I was not going to say that these were wasted months, because they were the only months that I had. The, the morning of Monday came early with two friends of mine, Charlie Hinton and Sheila Singleton, taking me to breakfast. Rather, we took ourselves to breakfast uh, at the Ramada Inn up near Crabtree. It doesn't exist there anymore. It's been torn down for another hotel. But we had breakfast there, just like we had done many times in the past. So it's around 7 or 7.30 in the morning. We each paid for our meal because that made it look more normal. Then I said goodbye, got in my car and drove away. I was at home alone that morning by myself. About 10 or 10.30 in the morning, the telephone rang, and it was a friend of mine who was a reporter for the Associated Press wanting to interview me on what I was going to wear to prison that day. And what books might I take with me? The truth of the matter is I had not even much thought about what I was going to wear. It's not one of those situations where you're trying to dress well. So, and I didn't know how long I'd be able to keep those clothes that I did wear in prison. I rather thought I might not keep them that long. Anyhow, I, uh, Told him I'd look at it, and if he wanted to call me back later in the day, he could. I told him I had no real idea about the books that I would take. After he called, I got up from a chair upstairs in the bedroom and walked into the bathroom and closed the door and locked it. I had no idea why I locked the door since nobody's in the house but myself, but I did. And I had this short, brief conversation with God. 
and asked that I just be able to get through what was coming. And then I looked in the mirror and squarely at myself and said, you can do this, Jim. You are better than anybody thinks you are. You can do this. That was it. I was okay. I uh, had to be, I think, at Wade Smith's office downtown Raleigh by around five o'clock. He was hoping I would show up. He kept calling me all during the day, I guess, worried about whether I was going to, you know, show up or not, or whether I was going to go away. And uh, anyhow, I showed up. I got there. Jeff took me downtown. And uh, we got almost down to the place where he was going to let me off. He asked if I had brought a Bible with me. I said, no, I had not. So he turned around the car and drove back to the house to get this Bible that he and Stacy and everybody had given me for Christmas with my name embroidered on the front of it. And I took it with me. Of course, I did not take it past Wade's office because they won't let you take books in, into prison. So that didn't help too terribly much. Uh, the same was true with my uh, some of my other things that I took that morning or that afternoon. But we got there early and Wade wasn't ready for me yet. Rick wasn't there yet. And so I, I wandered around downtown Raleigh for 30, 45 minutes. It's cold, dry, blustery. And this hulking figure in a black overcoat towards me. And he said, hey, Jim. It was the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, uh, Justice X. I said, hey, Judge. He said, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. He said, well, I sure am sorry about what all has happened to you. I really am. When do you think you're going to have to go in? I said, well, in about 30 minutes, Judge. He said, oh, my God, I had no idea it was today or this afternoon. Yeah, so I'm sorry. He turned around and walked off like I shot him. I walked on downtown to the Wake County Courthouse. I, don't, I have no idea why I walked to the Wake County Courthouse, but I did. Went up to that same third floor I've spoken about previously. And you can hear the doors shutting all over the, the floor of the assistant district attorneys. Nobody, of course, wanted to see or talk to me because they didn't really know what to say to me at all. So, but I, I got in there and all of a sudden, one of the assistant DAs came out. It was Evelyn Hill. who was a friend of mine. We had tried cases together. She loved, subsequently became a Superior Court judge in North Carolina. She has now, unfortunately and sadly, passed away. On this particular day, she looked at me and she started smiling, sort of grinned and said, you know, Jim, I think within a month you'll be the mayor of the entire place. And I couldn't resist. I looked back and said, what makes you think it will take that long and she laughed and that was my humor I guess anyway we didn't talk long and I walked back to Wade's office which wasn't but about two blocks away shortly before five o'clock I met with he and Rick in his office we had a brief conversation where he told me that he had spoken to Franklin Freeman who was the head of the Department of Corrections at that time and they'd all agreed that I probably would not get work release, though it had been approved by the Superior Court judge, Judge Height, my sentencing the month before, because I wasn't going to be there that long. It was too short a time to go through all the bureaucracy and setting up work release. I didn't really say anything. I didn't object. I just sat there and listened. I didn't like that, and I didn't agree with it, but I didn't say anything. 
I was going to be there for about three months. I thought if I did well a month for a year. So we get up to go over about two blocks away. As we're crossing the street to the Wake County uh, Law Enforcement Center, the first camera comes out and then a couple of other cameras come out, taking my picture, walking into the lobby of the courtroom. I remember Wade saying, I wonder where she is. I didn't know who she was, and she turned out to be a deputy sheriff who they had made arrangements with, would meet us there at this point of hour, about 5.15. And uh, she came out very polite and uh, put handcuffs on me. Wade and Rick stood there watching. And uh, Wade's typical humor kicked in when I said, is there any advice that you want to give me, Wade, before I go into custody? He smiled and laughed and said, yes, there is one thing, Jim. I just hope that you won't turn too much to religion while you're in custody because that's what Republicans do. And I laughed and said, okay. And uh, walked in. My main memory of that time is as soon as I walked in the door to the... Uh, jail, holding facility, they took my handcuffs off. They took the shoelaces out of my shoes. I had top sider, so the lace went all around the shoe, you know. Took my mug shot, asked me a few questions, and uh, told me I was free to go into this room, which is pure glass, and sit by myself and wait. I think I waited forever seemed like forever it was probably a couple hours but with nothing to do in there i was waiting i kept seeing these people walking by outside you know and they they they, they were inmates and guards and the guards had gloves on plastic latex gloves and that that, didn't, that that sort of bothered me you know i did not realize these people were actually being released and so they were getting their clothes back and so the people had gloves on so they wouldn't touch the clothes or that sort of thing. That's all it was. I go there and I change my clothes and put on an orange jumpsuit. Zips up the front. It's ugly color. The same color socks, long socks. Goes up almost to your upper calf. And some black flip-flops. I uh, go quietly, I hope, to my room. I John Baker was the, still the sheriff at that time. I knew John Baker. Uh, he worked in Senator Morgan's campaign, so I knew him. And so I did not have to go upstairs in general population. They had a room for me down on the first floor. Is that the first example of uh, special treatment? Probably. And all I will say about that is, I don't know whether it was or not, but even if it wasn't, I was grateful for that special room or a room that night where I stayed and spent the night. The next morning, I was to go to Troy, which is down uh, in the middle part of the state. It's a small town. They had a big prison there. And uh, it was a medium security, but that's where I would go for processing. And uh, anyhow, I uh, 
was getting ready to get dressed in this jailer where deputy sheriff turns to me and he says, Jim, would you like to take a shower? I said, no, I don't want to take a shower. So why not? Well, I've decided I'm not going to take any showers for the entire time I'm in prison. He started laughing. He said, well, look, Jim, I tell you what, if you will go in and take a shower right in that door, you can lock the door from the inside, not the outside. And you can stay there as long as you won't take a hot shower, which you probably will want to do. So I said, okay. So I did that. Got out and said, Would, while you wait for your ride, would you like to look at the newspaper? Sure. So he gave it to me. It was a magistrate's copy. I opened it up, went to the state section, you know, the inside. And there above the fold was a photograph of me, Wade and Rick, as I'm getting in, getting handcuffed the day before coming into the prison or the jail. My uh, What I wore to prison that day or jail is significant because I had on a sweatshirt that said Wake, like for Wake Forest. And I laughed and told the magistrate, I said, I bet the deacons aren't going to be too happy about seeing this picture. And uh, anyway, he laughed, said it was great. I get up and the person I'd spoken with the day before comes up to me and says, Jim, I, I need to tell you something. What's that? Well, I have bad news. What do you mean you have bad news? Well, first of all, I've got to put these handcuffs and leg irons on you because that's the way we transport all inmates. It's just procedures, nothing personal at all. But that's what you've got to wear. Okay. What else? Well, Jim, um, Channel 5, the local TV station, has just called here this morning. They want to know if they can send a videographer over to take your picture in a film walking to the van. So we promised that we would call them when you're ready to leave here and go. They want to use that for the evening news tonight. Great. Well, look. Yes. Can't you take these handcuffs off? I'm not going to hurt anybody. Jim, I, I would if I could but I can't, it's procedure, office procedure. I'll get in trouble if I take them off. He said, look, Jim, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be okay. You'll get through this. You're gonna come back, you'll be fine. I said, okay. When I said, okay, he, he relented and said, I tell you what, if your driver does not care, I will take them off. Great. About that time, the driver walks around the building. I looked at him. He hardly looked at me, but I thought to myself, he doesn't look real soft and look real friendly. He doesn't look like he's going to be on my side. So I did not even ask. So I walked to the van with my handcuffs on, the videographer for Channel 5 filming me doing that. I get in the back seat of the van and we pull out of the garage into the road to go out of downtown Raleigh, down US-1 towards Sanford, We're cutting over towards Pittsburgh and on our way to Troy. Well, as we were crossing the bridge on the Beltline near the state fairgrounds, 
he can pull over to the side of the road, and he does so. Still hasn't spoken to me a word. I haven't spoken to him. He didn't even say hello. He turns off the ignition to the van, gets out, walks around, and slides open the door where I'm sitting. He looks at me and he smiles and he says, Mr. Blackburn, my wife knows who you are. And she knew I was going to drive you this morning. So she has made for both of us, but especially for you, a special thermos of coffee. How would you like yours? Well, I smiled and I said, however you got it, you know, I'll, I'll drink it. That cup of coffee, sitting on the van, in the van, on my way to prison, in an orange jumpsuit, with handcuffs, ankles, bracelets, leg irons on me, drinking a cup of coffee made by a lady who I did not know and had never met and never would meet. turns out to have been the most memorable cup of coffee I have ever had in my life. It's one of the nicest things anybody's ever done. For the rest of the trip to Troy, which was about an hour, we talked the whole way. He answered all my questions, of which I had lots we just talked and chatted as we were old friends. He thought I should be in protected custody and not risk going into the general population because I had been a prosecutor. And so I agreed with him. And I was going to do that. And I did. When I got to Troy, I got out of the van, walked inside, and I don't recall when I last saw him. I don't even recall if he said goodbye, but just got in the van and drove away back to Raleigh, and I was, again, all alone. I go in there. I get a change of clothes. I lose the leg irons for good, but I still have the handcuffs. And uh, they said, Mr. Blackburn is supposed to go to the infirmary right away, not to be waited. There's no wait for him. He goes to the infirmary. So I go to the infirmary. Small room, one table in the middle of the room. There's a nurse there, a young nurse there. She looks at me and points her finger and she smiles and says, I know who you are. You're that preacher. Jim Baker. I said, oh, my God. Smile for me, honey. I smile. She said, you are a dead ringer for him. Get up on this table and let me take your blood pressure. I do. I can't roll up my sleeves because I have the handcuffs on. And so she does it for me. 
she puts it, wraps it around my arm and begins to pump and take my blood pressure. She said, mm, mm, mm. It's a little high today. It's a little high today. At that point, my demeanor cracked just a little bit. And a one tear, I think, slides down the right side of my cheek, my right side. She takes her finger and wipes it away. And she says, you're under a little pressure today, aren't you, darling? You know, I never saw it coming. Random acts of kindness can hit you when you don't have any idea that they're going to come your way. And there on what has to be a tough morning. First, a deputy sheriff and his wife give me a cup of coffee from a thermos. And then this young nurse has the sensitivity and graciousness, graciousness to help me get through the rest of it in her infirmary office. I have never seen either one of these people again. I, I don't know their name. I tell people all the time, if you want to get passion back in your life, if you want to feel young again, if you want to feel encouraged about life again, simply do something nice for somebody who's not going to ever know your name. You know, one of the definitions, classical definitions of kindness is being gracious to someone or helpful to someone, not expecting anything in return. There wasn't a darn thing in return that I could give either one of these two people. Nothing. They got absolutely nothing from it. But I did. And I have told this story so many hundreds of times over the last years to groups and places where I've been. And it, it always gets an emotional reaction from people. It always touches people. And I think that's not because of me, but because of the kindness of what other two people can do. Here were two state employees, probably not highly paid, doing tough work in the middle of the state, being nice to somebody when they didn't have to be, or when it was not in their job description to be that way. I spent a week there. I remember one day this uh, guard comes and knocks on the door and comes in. He brings a young guard with him. He says, this is Jim Blackburn. He used to be a United States attorney. And the young guard looks at me and says, you used to be a United States attorney? I said, yes. He said, well, what the hell happened to you to be here? And I just looked at him and smiled. Well, it's a long story. It was in prison this week in Sanford that I learned not to feel sorry for myself. My two friends, Sheila and Charlie, who I'd had breakfast with uh, on that first Monday I went in, came to see me. I got really ready 
for them. I put on my clothes. I tried to use a safety razor to shave my face without cutting myself to death. A little round bar of soap, you had to probably rub it on your hands for about 20 minutes before you get any lather whatsoever. And then it wasn't much. Anyway, I got done as best I could. I met them. We were divided by plexiglass and had my handcuffs on. And they said, uh, Jim, we've got bad news. I said, what do you mean? I said, they held up my hands like that. I said, this is bad news. No, Jim, we, we have worse news. I said, what? You remember Pete Carruthers? Pete is a minister at White Memorial where I went to church and Charlie went to church. I'd seen Pete at his home a couple of weeks before I went in. He was laying on the floor in the basement. He had four girls and he and his wife and four girls and daughters had been to Disney World early in the month of December. While there, he'd had a seizure. They brought him back to Raleigh and he had tests done, brain scans and everything done. And Charlie or Sheila once said, I think it was Charlie, said he has inoperable brain cancer. He's going to die. Pete was in his 40s. He was young, a minister, four daughters, had a red sports car, liked to fish, drink an occasional beer. He's a good friend of mine, a friend of a lot of people's, and he was going to die. All of a sudden, spending a week in Troy, being handcuffed, eating lousy food, being locked up. Didn't seem quite so bad. Pete had come to see me in the hospital with Duke back almost a year before this time when I was there in the psychiatric wing. And so somehow everything else paled. I think it was that day later, or perhaps the next day, a nurse came to the door. I was in a private cell, so it wasn't bars, but it was a locked room. And she talked to me through an opening in the door and asked and gave me some Prozac. She gave me medicine every day. I stood there until she thinks I took it, which I always did take it. She said, I know you're bored in there. Would you like something to read? I said, I sure would. Have you got anything? She said, well, we don't have much of a library here. But I can bring you a very small, almost unreadable, but it's a very small Bible. Would you like that if I brought it to you? You can keep it. I said, you know, that would be the best thing in the world. So she did. Within minutes, she was back. And the rest of the week, at times, I would read. I'd read stories from the Old Testament and the New Testament. I read about uh, the stories of Joseph going into Egypt, the coat of many colors, Easter, Christmas, Paul, the road to Damascus, everything I could think of to read. I wrote, you know, the Bible is full of stories, wonderful stories, and that's what I read. And at the end of the week, I didn't feel great. But I was not suicidal. I wasn't really depressed. I was okay. I was okay. 
I didn't know when I was going back to Raleigh until about late one afternoon when they come back. I said, Blackburn, you're going to be going in about 30 minutes to Raleigh. They're going to bring you food right now. Be ready. Let me tell you, it did not take me long. The food was just absolutely wretched and awful, so I didn't even bother with it. And uh, I left, drove back to Raleigh. And they had this, this, this person who drove me in the car insisted he, I put on my handcuffs and leg irons on to take me back. And I thought that was sort of dumb. But anyway, I let him do it. I mean, I couldn't stop him. Halfway back to Raleigh, he said he was thinking about going to law school at Campbell. Want to know what I thought? Want some advice? I said, well, you know, I think a whole lot more about giving you great advice if you did not put these darn leg irons on. And then he apologized, but he didn't stop the car and take them off, but that was okay. And I gave him some advice. Got back to Raleigh about 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And uh, the first person who opens the door, take those leg irons off of him, for goodness sakes. He doesn't need those. Take those handcuffs off of him. He doesn't need those either. So I was able to walk like a free person into, it was cold, so I went in to get a coat, jacket, and hat. So I declined the hat because I don't like hats. And the, and the inmate said, what do you mean you don't like hats? I said, well, I don't look good in hats. He says, who cares? This is prison for God's sake. I said, I know, but I don't like hats. He said, well, look. He said, what's your lawyer? I said, yes. He said, you have to give up your law license. I said, well, I did. He said, I'll tell you what. I said, what? I bet you get it back. Well, thanks. You know, the first person who ever said to me that he thought I might get it back, I never have asked, but he thought I might get it back, was an inmate in prison, for God's sakes. I go up to the dorm with the guard who was walking with me to take some of my sheets and blankets and stuff to make up the bunk bed I was having. I was assigned the bed. It was on it was uh, on the top bunk, which I might add, before I forget it, the top bunk is where you want to stay in prison. You don't want to stay in the bottom bunk. And uh, that's because everybody comes and sits on the bottom bunks. You have no privacy. Harold Brown is the man in charge of the dorm. Has a podium at the front of the dorm. There are two sides, about 30 people each side, with bunk beds up and down. Cinder block walls. He motions for me to come up to see him, so I, I do. He says, Jim, I suppose you're somewhat in a state of shock of being here tonight. I know that you didn't think this would be where you would ever be in your life. I said, well, you got that right. He said, well, look, I run a tight ship here. You don't cause me any trouble. I won't cause you any trouble. We'll get along fine. I said, Mr. Brown, I promise you, I'm not going to cause you any trouble. I am just happy to be away from Troy and come here and do what I'm supposed to do be free and go home, start my life all over again. He smiled and said, good. I'll talk to you soon. I walked back to my bunk bed and there was a young man sitting, looking at me um, from his bunk. He's right next door, about two feet away, three feet most. His name was Ricky Carver. He was from Durham. I said, Ricky, what are you in for? It's not about being terror to the people. You were a terror to the people, tear yourself up. Man. He never, I never did understand what it was he did, but it was not good, I don't think. But anyway, I liked Ricky. We got along famously well. 
he became a help me make up my bunk that first night. He put the uh, shoelaces back in the topsiders, which I could not do. Walked with me to breakfast the next day, sat with me and ate, and was always there to hear anything I wanted to say and talk for the entire three months. I was there. I got out before he did. He had a sister who lived in Durham. On occasion, when I got out and free, I would call his sister just to give her updates as to how I thought he was doing. She worked for the telephone company in Durham. Later on that first night, Mr. Brown summons me back to the podium again. I go back up. He says, Jim, I was just thinking, Mrs. Brown has done some baking last night, and, and she has baked for you a ham biscuit. Would you like one? I said, that'd be great. Ah, well, good. You don't have to take it. I do want to take it. We'll go get you some coffee over there. It's not very good, but it's it's okay. Not bad. And uh, come back and get your biscuit. I did. And as I was walking back to my bunk bed, Ricky says, so I see you're going to become one of Mr. Brown's boys. He says, I said, what do you mean? He says, he's got a few friends here. I'm one of them. If you're one of his boys, it's just a lot better for you here. I said, well, I want to be one of his boys. That's really what I want to be more than anything. Okay, you can do that, Jim. So I wanted to get work release. I didn't have it yet. I mean, I've been approved for it. I knew I was going to have a job with Robert Morgan. The next day, in the afternoon, Dina Davenport, a young lady from, I don't know where she was, she graduated from East Carolina, called me to her office, and she was the person I had to talk to about setting up work release. And she indicated that it might be difficult to do, it would take some steps, maybe several days, Anyway, I asked her, she wanted to know if I had a job and if they had workman's cop, uh, that sort of thing. I said, they did. Uh, and so she said, well, do you know the number? I happened to know the number. So she called and spoke to Senator Morgan, who was at the office, in his office, he picked up the phone. It was a brief conversation. All I know is that she spoke to him at some length later and and came back and called me back to her office and said, well, you have work release starting tomorrow. He wants you as long. He wants you a lot. He wants you till seven o'clock at night. If you can, you have to, you can be out till seven o'clock every night, six days a week. You can take Saturday off and stay here. But Sunday through Friday, you're there. Is that too much? I said, no, that'd be great. So I, uh, called home, had them bring me some clothes and drop them off so I could wear some street clothes, which I could wear to work downtown. I didn't have to wear my prison green shirt and slacks, which weren't bad, but they were just not great. And so I did that. One of Robert's daughters was Mary Morgan. She's a lawyer, but she was expecting a child. So she was out. So I had her office, which was next to Robert's office. I did some research for them. 
But essentially what I did was I uh, opened the office in the morning, turned the lights on, made the coffee, checked in, make sure everything was in order, did anything I could to help, offered to help from doing anything, and uh, started working on a draft of my book that I hoped to write. Somewhere that first day, I think Wade Smith comes to see me there and says, uh, Jim, I like your haircut. I've had a haircut. It was short. I said, well, Wade, one of the advantages of being a lawyer is that you get you don't have to wait in line to get a haircut because the guy who's cutting the hair wants your advice on how you can get out of there quicker. So I went and talked to him. Now I got my haircut quickly. Well, it looks good. Thanks, Wade. And Wade said, you know, Jim, Years I had, you had one of the almost perfect cases. I looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He said, well, where you think about where you were a year ago, where you were facing, you were facing the pits of hell. It was so black. It was so dark. We didn't know what was going to happen. It just looked unfathomable. And here you are. And I know you're not free, but you're going to be free. You come through the absolute worst and you're going to do this time and you'll be free. You did the, such a right thing to do, the way you handle it. And I said, Thank, thanks, Wade. My eyes rolled a little bit. And that was it. He was gone. But I've always been grateful. He came. Nick talked to me as well. Same sort of type conversation. Upbeat, supportive. Robert said, Jim, there's one other thing I need to ask you to do. I said, what's that? Well, Margaret, his other daughter, who was a lawyer, is, was going through a very unfortunate separation from her husband. So she was unhappy and angry. He says, you, you need to keep her from quitting and you need to keep her from killing me or me killing her while she were arguing about everything. Margaret and I bonded great. I love Margaret and I love Mary, both of them. I've known them most all of their lives. And uh, she would take me back to prison so many times. And she's just, both of them, they were all a wonderful, wonderful family to me. So I uh, go back to prison. What prison is, it's the absence of freedom. You give up the right to go and come as you please to eat what you want, to turn the lights on and off. I never turned a light switch on or off while I was there. To sign up for when you can make a telephone call outside. You can only talk for 10 minutes because others have the right to do the same thing. There weren't that many telephones. Um, there were no guns or guard towers there. There was a high chain link fence with rolling barbed wire on the top. You could get within, you could get about three feet away from the fence, but not any closer than that. They did count about four times a day. And that's how they decided whether or not anybody was missing. If the count didn't equal what it's supposed to be, then they had a problem. Nobody ever had a problem while I was there, although I think they did after I was gone. I went for walks. They had their track. Had visitation on Saturdays. Visitation in prison is like a Saturday night 
dance in high school or elementary school or middle school where the boys are on one side of the gym and the girls are on the other and the girls are waiting for the boys to come over and ask them to date, to dance. Maybe they do and maybe they don't. There's always some girl who doesn't get asked and it's very sad. It was always a time when some people would get dressed up ready to be visited and nobody came. That's always very sad. We met in the cafeteria. We talked for maybe 30 minutes and that was it. So they would sometimes take, select a person to have random strip searches on visitation. They got me one time for that. And I went in this little restroom right across the hall and they yelled in there, Jim, just don't worry about it. Just stop. Open the door. You're okay. And they used to pick me for random strip searches almost all the time because I think I was the least person who would be suspected to do anything wrong. And they could do this. They could, they could check the box they had done one. And it was just me. So they said, go in there and just stand for two or three minutes and, and you'll be okay. My great thing that I was so proud of while I was there, you can't take money in and out or things in and out. And I remember helping to smuggle, I think a $20 bill or something like that in or out. I don't remember which it was and getting change for people. And I would roll the, not the roll of paper, get the bill so I could put it in like a little packet of sugar or equal or something like that after, you know, that was empty and stuck it in there and put it in my pocket and go. And I was so proud of myself. I just thought I was just a really, a, you know, really something in prison that I could do something so silly like that. Smitty was my bunkmate. He would look at my locker. He said, I have the worst messy locker in the whole prison. I said, Smitty, how long are you going to be in prison? Well, another couple of years. I said, well, look, if you're going to be in here two years, you don't have any right to argue with me about my prison locker being messy. He started laughing. He said, well, look, Jim, let me ask you something. He said, what? I said, he said, can I, can you lend me $2? What do you want $2 for? Well, I want to gamble, play cards tonight. And if I win, I'll give you some of the winnings. So I did. <clears throat> Smitty never won, or at least he never told me he won, because I never got any money back. I must have done this two or three times with Smitty while I was there. I liked Smitty. He was a good guy. He left before I was there and went to another facility, I think. Mr. Brown was so nice to me. He fed me a number of times. Later on, after he passed away, when I was working as a waiter at the oyster bar, his wife and kids came to the oyster bar and I waited on them. They came specifically so that I would wait on them. And she said, I feel like I know you. I said, well, you should know me. You fed me half the time for three months, and she laughed. It's unreal that that could happen. There was another person I need to tell you about, Joe Spence. Joe Spence had been on death row, first-degree murder. His conviction was overturned, a retrial, he got life the second time. 
He had another person that shot a cab driver in Greensboro when they were on high on drugs in the late 1960s. He'd been in prison all this time. Mean as a snake, he said, for the first 20 years he was in this, just mean as a snake. Sometime along the way, he realized he needed to quit being mean because that wasn't going to get him anywhere. And by the time I met him, he had mellowed a great deal. And we became fast friends. I remember one night I was reading this book and I kept falling asleep. And everybody said, Jim, why do you fall asleep when you read that book? How much have you read? Not much. What, what is it? And they opened up and said, oh, my God, this is the reason. It was a book from the, it was one of those Christian type books. It was a great book, I'm sure, but it just didn't keep me going. And so they said, let's get you another book. So they went down and got, look, Judd Spence, they said, open up your lock. And uh, they opened it up and uh, got some sort of racy books, but sort of novels, books, you know, that were interesting. And I read through them. One after the other, I couldn't get them fast enough and just thought it was wonderful. People in prison, most of the people there would admit that they needed to be there. They'd done something wrong and they were at fault. I love those people. There were some who would not admit that. They thought it was somebody else's fault. I did not like those people. I would agree to write letters for people if, because lots of times they could not write, write or spell very well, so long as. They did not try to say that it was someone else's fault. So long as they were admitting it was their responsibility and their fault, and they were asking for some kind of relief, I would help them any way I could. There's this nice lady. She was a nurse. Walking by one day, she knocked on the window and asked me to come inside. And I went inside and she gave me, this Valentine's Day, and she gave me some Valentine candy. Another day towards the springtime, she motioned for me to come in and she said, I think that your paperwork is up front and you're going to be released soon. And she was so excited for me. And I was released. I was released. My parole officer drove me back home. Sheila and Charlie took me to the worship bar where I had a crab cake sandwich, french fries, and iced tea for lunch. I wandered around the house by myself, hard to believe that I was finally free. And the telephone right? And it was Robert Morgan. Have you talked to anybody or heard from anybody? No. Why? Well, Jim, they are looking for you. I said, who is looking for you? Me. Well, they have made a mistake. They misfigured your time and let you out about two weeks too soon. They thought that you went in in December and you didn't go in until January. And so you may have to go back. Unless I can get it changed, you're going to have to go back. But don't do anything right now. Close the drapes. Don't open the door for anyone. Don't answer the telephone. And I'll call back in about a half hour, and I'll do a code. I'll let it ring once and hang up, then I'll call back. That'll be me. This is a guy who's former state attorney general, director of the SBI, and for one term, a United States senator, conspiring with me to help to not get picked up. He's the straightest arrow I've ever met in my entire life. So finally he calls back and I said, Robert, you're not going to be able to fix this. Nobody's going to touch this. It's just too hot with the news right now this afternoon. I want to go back and I want to go back on my own and I want to go back right now. 
and I'll see you tomorrow morning. Jim, I think that's probably the smart thing to do. And that's what I did. As I was getting out of the car to walk back into the prison where about 100 inmates up against the fence, I think hoping they'd get on television or seeing what all the news was about. Um, Dave Bullock, who was a reporter for Channel 11 in Durham, who has now sadly passed away, but he was a wonderful, wonderful guy and great reporter, puts a microphone in my face and he says, Jim, we've just talked to the parole board and they have admitted it's their fault and their mistake. And they have just said to you, they want me to say to you that they, it's, they apologize for any embarrassment or inconvenience this has done for you. I hope you'll be okay and you'll be released soon. What do you want to say back to them? And I said, well, if they have made a mistake, and, and we all do, it's not their fault I'm coming back. It's mine. I'm here because of what I did, not because of what they did. So I'm going to do the best I can. And he uh, put the mic down, turned it off, and looked at me and said, you know, Jim, you're a hell of a guy. And I laughed. And I said, that's what I want to be. <laughs> Dave, I want to be a hell of a guy in your eyes. And I laughed and walked on in. They gave me my bunk back. The person who ran the laundry brought the sheets and everything to me so I didn't have to come get them. That morning before I had left, I had given away all the things that I thought were important to me, such as my coffee cups, stirs, sweet and low or equal, cut cans for which form the basis for legs for a, a shelf. These are really important things. And all of them had been returned and put back on the bed. One of the inmates came up to me and he worked in the officer's office. And he said, you know, Jim, I'm going to bring you a, when I see you every morning or any morning early, I'm going to bring you a cup of coffee. It's better coffee than what you get where you are and have it fixed for you however you want it. You won't have to ask. God bless you. And he did. In the blink of an eye, I've become more like them. And I was treated that way by them. And I don't want to tell you that everybody felt that way. That would not be true. But most did. I don't remember the names of many of the people. I remember Mr. Brown. I remember Joe Spence. Joe Spence, who everybody wanted to be released from prison never got out. His co-defendant had. He did not ever get out. He died of cancer. You know, I will have to tell you that years later, six years later, I was doing a book signing from a book flame out at Quail Ridge Bookstore in Raleigh. 
Had lots of nice people there. Had a big crowd, sold over 60 books that first night. Nancy Olson, the owner, was just wonderful to me. Beverly Lake was there. He became Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court. Gene Boyce, a prominent Raleigh lawyer, was there. And then there was a person in the back waiting in line to buy a book with blue jeans and a white T-shirt. I don't know his name. I only know him as Rags. Rags was an inmate there when I was at Wake Correctional. He hurt his hand one day at work, and he said, we're going to take him to Central Prison to have his hand worked on. He didn't want to go to Central Prison. He was afraid he would lose the ability to use his hand if he did. So he asked me if I knew a hand doctor, and it turned out I did know someone, Dr. George Edwards, who had worked on Jeff's hand one time years before. He's a specialist, one of the best in this area. And I said, call him, look, him up, look his number up in the yellow pages. They did, and he went, and they saved his hand. And the last day I was in the prison, he walks up to me and signs his name, Rags, on a yellow sheet of paper with the hand that was hurt. And Rags is there to buy one of my books. It just doesn't get much better than that. It really does. Dina Davenport, the young lady who helped me get work release and helped me while I was in prison. I saw her a number of years ago at the Wild Turkey Lounge at the Angus Barn, where she was working part-time. She sees me and walks over and says, remember me. Of course, I remember her. We're friends, friends on Facebook. She says, even now, that she may come to one of my seminars. It's amazing that you meet people that can be so influential at a portion of your life. President Carter once made a commencement speech at Emory University, where he said he thought that the three most sound principles for living a good and happy and productive life were kindness, kindness, and kindness. That is what I experienced. That is what helped me get through that time. And so when I tell you about my stories of prison, I can tell you the bad part in a couple of minutes. But I can tell you the better part that was influential in the rest of my life in an hour. One is much longer than the other. It is what you make of it. It is how you respond to it. I could not prevent myself from going to prison. That's what the court ordered. I had no choice but to go. I could, however, determine how I was going to handle it. And I wanted to handle it with as much grace as I could, as well as I could. And then I would have no regrets of that experience. And that is what I tried my best to do. I would say to you, in closing, that we all go through tough times. It's how you respond to it. 
You have to do whatever it takes to get through a tough time. Whatever it takes. You have to have humility. You have to have perseverance. And you have to keep trying. I hope you have enjoyed this today and look forward to seeing you again soon.